Perhaps the late Chadwick Boseman's best performance was in his last film, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Boseman plays a trumpet player in a blues band led by Gertrude Ma Rainey, played by Viola Davis, who puts in an excellent performance of her own. The film centers on a fictional band rehearsal in Chicago and was honored with several motion picture nominations and awards. But what does any of this have to do with Georgia? Well, Ma Rainey has some real solid Georgia connections, and that's what we're going to take a look at today. This is your host, Wayne Ackerson, Associate Professor of History at Georgia Gwinnett College in Lawrenceville, Georgia, and you're listening to Prowling the Peach State, a history podcast with the word history used loosely. I call it prowling because we'll be going off the beaten path frequently, and there's plenty of more normal stuff as well. So join me now for this episode of Prowling the Peach State. The blues emerged around the turn of the 20th century, deeply rooted in African-American music of the previous 50 years or so. Blues music of that period fell into a couple of different categories. Among others, there was ragtime, popularized by Scott Joplin and others, country blues, as well as Memphis blues style, uh, popularized by W.C. Handy and others. African Americans, though, had begun moving to the big cities of the North, like Chicago and Detroit. And in the 1920s, singers like Gertrude Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith brought Southern blues to these large urban centers. But their themes were very different from those of their male blues singer counterparts. Ma Rainey was from Georgia, and to learn more about this, I went to Columbus, Georgia, and met with Florine Dawkins. Ms. Dawkins is the director of the Ma Rainey House, and she and I sat down to talk about Ma Rainey. The audio quality isn't perfect, I'm still learning, but Ms. Dawkins gave me a great background and overview of Ma Rainey's early life and her career. Ma Rainey, she was born in Columbus, Georgia, in 1886. Now, you see some records say she was born across the river in Phoenix City. If you do your research, we've tracked it back, and Fred Fussell was our curator, that she was born here. But she lived here, her family lived here. I guess her mother sung, and um, you know, she sung in church, and I think they recognized that she had a talent early on. Young Gertrude attended a segregated school nearby and probably attended through around the fifth grade, and that would have been considered pretty well-educated for an African-American woman back then. Pretty soon, she was performing in public, and before long, her life would change. When she was about, some records say 14, some say 15, if you go downtown to the Spring Opera Center on their marquee sign, she was in a play, a musical, up in the peanut gallery, as they called it, because African-Americans weren't allowed down in the right. theater. A bunch of black, uh, wild black berries. That is her first musical performance at 15. So she was known for singing at the church and, and different things. A, a vaudeville show came to town. Vaudeville shows would usually come to town on a Saturday, Usually someone would come into town on Wednesday or Thursday. They would slap these signs up on a building, plaster them, rockle show, colored show, black face. The prettiest colored girls in town, they were called, some of them were called shape dancers because they shook, I guess would be a good thing yeah. to say. So it was a Bible show when Paul Rainey came around 1904. He came through. And uh, she was 18 and and... She was enthused with him, and she left. They married, and she left. Yeah. And Ma and Pa were any assassinators of the blues. And they toured, she was touring with the show, and she toured with him for about 15, 16 years. It varies. 
Now, we never find a record where they divorced. It was just they weren't together anymore. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, because it doesn't we, we, say anywhere that, that she... It doesn't say anywhere where they divorced. It was Ma and Pa Rainey's. They were assassinators of the blues. Different names. 1917, 18. It was just Ma Rainey. And now, Pa is buried here in Columbus. Right. But he wasn't from Columbus. And, and, and he was kind of gone. You know, I, when I do my tours, I said, we hope he, you know, they're assassinators of the blues. We hope she didn't assassinate her. <laughs> right. But she was, she was, I think, a woman before her time. She, when we go through the house, she had a touring bus. And she had this, she, she traveled. And she put on shows. So Ma Rainey was already a veteran performer by the time she signed with Paramount in 1923. And what people realize Ma Rainey didn't sign with uh, Paramount to 1923. She was 37 years old. Right. So she had done this, you know, for almost 40 years since a baby she was singing and performing. Right. Um, Paramount was a furniture company, if you know that. They were building furniture. And they they wanted to get on what was called, and we can look at some of the posters and things that was circulating about these acts. They call it race music, uh, the great race music. And they signed several artists, early 1920s. Ma Rainey was signed in 1923. She recorded over 100 records. During Ma Rainey's first recording session in 1923, she recorded her own version of a classic, Bow Weevil Blues. Female blues singers often sang about relationships and sexuality. You know, heartache was part of the real world, but these women did not sing as victims. And listen to Ma Rainey in Sleep Talkin' Blues, which she co-wrote, where she warns her man that he had best not say another woman's name in his sleep, or else. Yeah. 
It can be a real challenge sometimes trying to reconstruct the professional careers of these early singers, especially African-American singers. One of the things when we were doing the house, we tried to get some documents of what her first contract was with Paramount and how much she was paid. And first of all, they said they, the records were destroyed and everything. And, and it probably were, but I think a lot of people talked about they're probably, because black entertainers were paid virtually nothing. Right. So we couldn't find anything, or they wouldn't give us anything. You know, it's interesting because if, if you look at even, even white performers in that time, they didn't hardly have any control over anything either. They, um, they didn't. And, 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 and some of them had agents, but black people, she was her agent. She right. was her booker. Yeah. She was everything. Right. And, and you know, they would, and she actually could play in some of the places she could not stay or eat or right. do anything. Right. Especially when she was performing, she was in Chicago and different places. Yeah. Um, she could practice in the back and go, but when it was time to perform, they came through the kitchen. Right. And that was part of the indignation that August Wilson wrote about in these 10 places. Ma Rainey was already a very seasoned entertainer by the time her Paramount career began, and she played to her strengths. You know, Ma Rainey, and this is what her, her niece, Jean Rutledge, told me, she, she never thought of herself as pretty. And she, you know, glamorous. But she dressed the part. Elaborate gowns and different things and silver gold pieces, you know. Uh, she put on a show. Ma Rainey was quite the businesswoman and handled her own affairs when touring. Mayo Williams, a well-known black record producer, said of Ma Rainey, she was a shrewd businesswoman. We never tried to put any swindles on her, suggesting swindling artists was pretty common. She worked closely with many early blues and other performers. Thomas Dorsey, known as Georgia Tom because he was born here in Georgia, came to be known as the father of gospel music, and he led her band. She worked with young Louis Armstrong, who learned a lot about stage presence from her. She also worked with guitarist and pianist Tampa Red, also born in Georgia. In 1925, she co-wrote and recorded C.C. Ryder. Her band at the time included Armstrong and also Fletcher Henderson on piano. Henderson went on to a long career of his own, influencing swing and jazz deeply and working closely with Benny Goodman for many years. Fletcher Henderson was also born in Georgia. 
And when her sister died and everything, Maureen came back to this house, 1935. She took in, you know, they said she adopted children. We can't find she adopted any, but she just fostered some children. You know, in the black family, through history, we would take care of our own. We would right. put children in the system and thing, and that happened. Uh, Friendship Baptist Church was just right over here, her church. Her brother, Thomas, played the piano. She sung in the choir. I, and, and people said she played. Well, we never found records that Ma Rainey played the piano. Her brother played. She had the piano that we rescued. That was her piano. She didn't play. Her brother did. And, you know, being a, 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 a musician, you know, I think when she moved here, this house, when we were rehabbing the house, they think it was, it was originally built as one story. And then they added the top floor on. So, and when she died of 53 in 1939, she died of uh, congestive heart failure, probably brought on by the wildlife and just not getting, you know, right. a treatment, not going to the doctor. On her death certificate, they listed her as housekeeping. We found her death certificate. And her brother was said to have filled it out, and that's what he thought she was. Uh, she did perform. She came back different times. She didn't stay away from Columbus. She uh, came to the Liberty Theater, which is right here. And when the colored YMCA was open, it's not here anymore, uh, I saw a news clipping that she came in some, and Booker T. Washington from Tuskegee gave the opening address oh, in Ma Rainey. And I have that somewhere. I pulled the article. That... So she came back. She right. never forgot this was home. Yeah. You know, she came back here, and then the house went to her brother, Thomas, and then we bought it from, he died, and we bought it from his wife's family because it went to him, and it was in shambles. Yeah. Restoring a historic home or site can be a real challenge. Historical societies, federal grants, and so on usually have very specific requirements for authenticity. This can be difficult at times, and so we talked a little bit about that process. Um, we were able to... This is her original bedroom set. Uh, the piano, the Victrola, is hers. We were able to buy them back for an astronomical amount of money. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> uh, so people bought it and we bought them back. We, we started this and I started, this journey started in 1990. The city bought the house that it was in the condition you'll see. The stairs were over there. It was, and we tried to get money. I brought the Save America's Treasures grant back in the early 2000s to get the money. And with some help with some people in, in Washington, well, they they kind of told us where the money was. We had to do all the work and apply for right. it. And it was, a, it was a long process. But we got the matching funds in the city. And Historic Columbus, we went and got period wallpaper. We went to the studs, the studs back to what the house original color was. So it's all uh, we have telephone and books from 1939. So we tried to do it yeah. you know, to where she lived. Like it would have been. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, we had to, seeing that we took the money and it was historic preservation, we had to plaster the hallway which nobody put plaster here. So we had to get some a guy out of Atlanta to plaster walls. That was like fifty thousand yeah. dollars just to plaster because nobody did. Plaster. Yeah, you don't do that anymore. Um, yeah. and plaster in there. So 
upstairs, we didn't have to do that because this is office space. And they, you know, we work closely with the federal government and the, the historic society. And we had to hire a contractor. The burglar bars we needed, but they had to be designed and get them past it would fit the era of the house. Right. So it was a long journey. And uh, I think my next, well, my next journey, I had a setback was to try to get the house on the National, the Park Service to take it over. Because I think that way, the house will always be here. Right. Ma Rainey was well known to have had relationships with other women and often sang about this. You know, this was a common theme for many of these early female blues singers. And in her song, Prove It To Me Blues, she sings, Went out last night with a crowd of my friends. They must have been women because I don't like no men. And it's true, I wear a collar and tie. And later she says, wear my clothes just like a fan. Talk to the gals just like any old man. Because they say I do it, ain't nobody caught me. Sure got to prove it on me. I think she was coming of her own in her sexuality. Right. And then on some of the pictures she that we found early on, she dressed very masculine. And uh, she didn't hide that she was, I don't know, bisexual, gay, whichever one. I think she was probably more gay than bisexual because I think of reading her things, I think she saw Paul Rainey as a way to get out of her. Right. But I think she was always probably gay. Yeah. Uh, because most of her, rest of her history, you never see her with any other man. Or right. Any yeah, you'd think at some point she would have yeah. gone out somewhere or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, but and she didn't even hang with, with, with uh, she didn't even hang with, with men. Starting to draw this episode to a close, and so we talked a little bit about Ma Rainey's legacy. That was one of the records, Prove It On Me, and I think that was one of her, where she introduced the world to who she was about the lyrics in that. Right. So, I just think she was unapologetic about who she was. She didn't apologize and uh, didn't know her because when I was talking to her, her niece, it was a lot of shame of who she was. Right. You know, that her parents and her family carried back then. Yeah. It was a lot of shame for the African American community. First of all, you were doing the devil's music. There was speculation that you were gay. Right. You had been arrested in a hotel in Chicago with a what should I say? A dalliance with some young women. Yeah. Uh, so not only did the your people from your home or your family, but African American, you know. They just, that wasn't something they were yeah, that's, comfortable That was with. off the radar. It was that. off the, yeah, exactly. It was, you know, off the radar. So, but she was, like I said, she was unapologetic. She never apologized for who she was. She never apologized. And I have to admire her for that. Yeah. Be it if, you know, she stood her ground. So she, she was, she was, she was, as my mother said, she could walk it like she talked it. Right. Uh, I mean, people don't even do that today sometimes. So, you know, you're talking about a hundred years ago, somebody standing up to be different. Uh, People, I mean, and I don't care how progressive we got, it's still not an easy thing to do. Uh, She was plagued with hypertension. I've read uh, some people said that she had diabetes, hypertension. Uh, I know hypertension, that goes hand in hand with congestive heart failure. Right. You know, 
um, probably not getting treated, not taking the right Trying medicine. Trying to heavier, so, you know. Being on yeah. the road, not going, because relatively young age. Yeah. She's buried here in Columbus. Um, but for years, nobody, she was known everywhere else than in her hometown. Right. And uh, it was a journey, but I'm glad, I'm very proud of the house, I'm proud of who she was, and being, un- you know, unapologetically not, she, you know, she just, she refused to the norm, and that's a lot, can you imagine the courage? Well, like I said, now even people can hardly oh, do that work? sometimes, yeah. Yeah, and, and when you take a lot of the backlash from your own people, Right. Your relatives who don't play your music. Right. Uh, probably. She settled into the church. And, but then that was after she, her entire change. Gary Pound, Dr. Gary Pound did this portrait. He also did a portrait of her later years when she was going to Friendship Baptist Church. The attire was very different. And, you know, yeah. she came to be accepted right. probably. Ma Rainey died in December 1939 and is buried nearby. In 1994, the Postal Service issued a Ma Rainey stamp as part of a set honoring jazz and blues singers. She's been inducted into the Blues Foundation Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Her song, C.C. Ryder, was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. The play Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was written in 1982 by August Wilson and is the basis for the 2020 film adaptation of the same name. Well, a special heartfelt thanks to Florine Dawkins and the staff at the Ma Rainey House and Blues Museum. This episode ran a few minutes longer than I planned, but the time I think was very well spent. It's a site well worth visiting and supporting, and I'll post some more information on the Facebook page. Just search for Prowling the Peach State. Well, that's all for this episode of Prowling the Peach State. Written, produced, and directed by Wayne Ackerson. All rights reserved and copyright 2022. Special thanks to the Caffeine Creek Band for the intro and outro music. And listen, I'd love to hear from you, and you can email me at peachstateprowling at gmail.com. And you can send questions, comments, suggestions, whatever. Until next time, though, thanks for listening.